Well, if you've ever seen a license plate from Missouri, you know they're known as the Show Me State. And that slogan is tied to a speech that was given in 1899 by Willard Van Diver. Van Diver was a Missouri congressman who served on the Congressional Committee for Naval Affairs. And as he spoke at a naval banquet in Philadelphia, he declared, I come from a state that raises corn, cotton, and cockleburrows. Democrats and frothy, frothy eloquence neither convinces nor satisfies me. I am from Missouri. You have got to show me. Now, as we turn in our Bible today to the second part of James chapter 2, what we're going to see is that James says to us today as believers, show me your faith. Don't just talk about it. Don't just tell me you have it. Show me your faith. Someone once said, faith is like calories. You can't see it, but you can always see their results. <laughs> and that's the theme of what we will see today as we look at James 2. Uh, look with me as we begin reading in verse 14. James says, what use is it, my brother? And if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, and you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. In the same way, was, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, I'll tell you as we begin today that this is one of the most debated passages in all of the Bible. People will look at this and they'll say, well, what James is saying here contradicts the gospel of grace that we see in books like Ephesians and Romans and Galatians that were written by the Apostle Paul. Now, the problem comes when we take these verses from James out of the context in which they were written. Let me remind you of what we saw at the very beginning of this series in the book of James. James, you'll recall, was the very first book written in the New Testament. It's dated somewhere around A.D. 45, and this early date is the reason that we don't see any of the things uh, that came later in the church, like the Jerusalem Council in A.D. 49, where there was this uh, big debate at the council as to whether or not Gentiles needed to fulfill the works of the law in order to be considered Christians. It was James, as you see in Acts 15, that God used to be the one to give the defense for the gospel of grace. James was the one who was there in Jerusalem who said they do not need to fulfill the works of the law. So James, four years after this letter was written, did not change his position and suddenly say, oh, well, I was saying you had to work your way to God, but now I realize it's a gospel of grace. 
You see, the problem comes when we read verses like this and we take them out of the context. I want to remind you that when James wrote this letter, we saw in James 1.1 that it was written to a group of believers who were predominantly Christians, I mean predominantly Jews who had become Christians by placing their faith in Jesus as a promised Messiah. Those previously uh, followers of Judaism who were now completed Jews who understood the Messiah was Christ and what he did on the cross is what saved them were then being persecuted. They were moved out of their homes. They were chased out of their, their businesses. They lost their properties. They were part of the diaspora, as we saw, and they were scattered and persecuted. And what these believers needed, as James wrote to them, was not a message of how do you become a believer, but they needed to know how do you now live as one who is a follower of Christ. James uh, was speaking to those who were clearly Christians. If you look at the beginning of chapter 2, he calls them my brethren. And he speaks of their faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. You see, understanding the context is key because what James is writing to us today is not salvific. A big word that simply means, how are we saved? What he is telling us today is how we who are already saved are to then live our life. And if you have that understanding of the context, you won't be confused as to some do when they look at this. People sometimes say, Paul and James, they picture them as each having a sword, and they're at war with each other battling over who is right and how the gospel uh, is communicated. Is it salvation by grace alone, or is it through works? And rather than seeing these two uh, apostles crossing swords and fighting each other, we need to see them standing back to back with their swords out, fighting other foes of the gospel. Paul, when he wrote, when God used Paul to write letters like Galatians and Romans and Ephesians, he was fighting the legalistic Jews who were saying, you have to do the works of the law. That's why Paul said in Romans 3.28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart, apart from works of the law. Notice James isn't mentioning works of the law specifically. He's speaking of the works of our life as a believer. When James writes, he was correcting the Jews who had been saved and having received grace apparently said, you know, we don't have to do anything. We can just sit back, we have our fire insurance policy in our pocket, and we don't have to do anything. If you were here last week, you, you, you'll recall that in the beginning of chapter 2 that we looked at, we saw where James was calling on us to show love to one another. And as we walked through that passage, we saw that God said there, the fulfillment of the law is found in two main pillars, love your neighbor as yourself and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And James was focused on how we are to love one another. And this, again, is what he's carrying forward here. He wasn't teaching a, a gospel of works. Remember, we used a chain as an illustration, and we saw that if we break even one link of the law, the whole chain fails. And James will tell us next week when we get to chapter 3, he says in James 3, 2, we all stumble in many ways. He says we continually fail in fulfilling the law. And that's a problem, friends. Because Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The glory of God is the perfect fulfillment of the law. And if we fail to fulfill even one part of the law, remember the chain, if you break even one little link, he used adultery and murder as the example, but if we lie, if we steal a cookie, if we do anything, we've broken the entirety of the law. 
And Romans 6.23 tells us the problem is the wages of sin is death. So as we look at this passage, we need to have the understanding that James and Paul are not at war fighting each other. Rather, they are talking what James is telling us here is what we are to do once we are saved. Francis Ginch put it this way. Paul is dealing with obstetrics, with how new life begins. James, however, is dealing with pediatrics and geriatrics, with how life grows and matures and ages. And so if we have this understanding and that these two are not at war with each other, we will be able to better understand what we're looking at. Our passage begins in verse 14 with James asking two questions. He says, now I call them questions, but what he says, the way that they are phrased in the Greek text is they're really rhetorical. The Greek actually demands a negative answer. So when James says, can faith save him? He's saying no. Now, I put this verse up here because I want you to notice something. If you're using a King James version of the Bible, this is how your translation reads. Can faith save him? And when you read something like that, you think, well, he's speaking of faith in general. But in the Greek text, there is actually a a word that is attached to faith, which means that there is a designation. He's not speaking of faith in general. He's speaking of a faulty kind of faith because the Greek uh, article that is there needs to be translated, can that faith save him? If you have an NIV, yours says, can such faith save him? So if you have a King James Version or one that doesn't have that in there, you need to write in your Bible, can that faith save him? He says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? And the answer is James is saying is no, because it's a faulty faith. the, The truth of the matter is it's not even faith at all. Notice that as James tees up this discussion in verse 14, he says, if someone says. You see, he's not saying they actually have faith. What, What he's telling us here is that that person doesn't actually have faith, but that he claims to have faith. Again, we need to understand the difference as James is building this argument. I I can claim that a corpse has come to life. But friends, if there are no signs of life in the corpse, if there's no heartbeat, no pulse, it doesn't move, it doesn't talk, the evidence proves that my claim is false. And this is what James is saying. If you claim to have faith, a living faith, and there are no signs of life, your life has not been transformed by Christ, there's been no change in the way you were before you came to faith in Christ. There's no demonstration of God's love in and through your life. He says, you really have a dead faith. You have one of two options. Either you, you claim to have faith and you really don't, or you do have faith, but it's a dead faith. And either way, God says, you know what? There needs to be a change. There needs to be a change in the way that you are living. If you don't really have faith, you need to come to Christ. And if you do have faith, but you've been uh, just kind of like the Jews that James was dealing with, sitting back and saying, we don't have to show any works of love to others. He says, this needs to change. There needs to be signs of life in, in you as a believer. Now, In verse 26, if you look down there, James defines death this way. He says it is the separation of the soul from the body. And what he's telling us here is when we separate works from our faith, we have a dead faith. 
And I want to give a word of warning here. Because there can be somebody whose life is very active. They can look really good. They can be doing a lot of great works and still not have faith. Jesus warned us about this in chapter 7 of the Gospel of Matthew. He said in Matthew seven seventeen through 23, Jesus Christ said, So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Now listen to this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, there can be a plethora of good works in your life. You can do all kinds of things, even in the name of Christ. But what he says is, if you do not have a personal faith to go with your works, your works are worthless. Now, on the other end of the scale, we see the example in Luke chapter 23. Whereas Jesus Christ was dying on the cross, you'll recall that there were two other people being crucified at the same time. Two criminals, two thieves were dying. And one of them rejected and mocked Jesus, but the other one put his faith in Christ. And he said to Jesus, remember me this day. He says, I believe you're who you said you are. You are the Messiah. And how did Jesus respond to this man? In Luke 23, 43, Jesus said, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now that saved sinner died shortly after that. He never did one good work to go with his faith. And yet Jesus said, you will be in heaven with me. I point this out because salvation is by faith alone through God's grace, not a single work that we do. But what James is saying is once we come to faith, we do need to have works that show. That man had no opportunity to to show good works through his life to have his transformed life now change. As James talks to us today about works that need to be with our faith as believers, he uses a verb form that describes someone who continually lacks any external evidence of the faith he routinely claims to have. In other words, this is not a one-time event. This is a, as you look at the totality of your life from the time that you claim to have come to Christ, What evidence has there been of a change of your life, a transformation? And this is what James is saying to us. He says, as we look at our lives as believers, as we live our lives, there should be evidence. In verse 15, he sets up a hypothetical example to show what a hypocritical Christian looks like. He says, let's imagine there is a person in need of food and clothing. I want you to notice that he calls this person a brother or a sister. So if you're sitting here today saying, well, Roger, I see those people on the corner, those panhandlers, and I know if I give them money, they're just going to waste it or use it on drugs. James is taking that argument off the table for us. He says there's somebody sitting next to you in church. And this person is wearing threadbare clothing. Remember the picture last week of the rich and the poor man? And he says, there's this person sitting next to you who is literally in rags. And they have no clothing. 
and they have no food. And you look at them and you say, well, God bless you. Be warm and be filled. And then you walk away. James says, what good is that? Is that really what God wants us to do as Christians? Now, the Apostle John says something similar. In 1 John 3, chapter 3, verses 17 through 18, he says, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. You know, as I think about Wayside Chapel, I'm thankful that this is a church where I see these type of things happening. As I look at our church, it's, it's not just the daily ways that needs are met. Through the gifts that y'all give to the Agape Fund, through the, those of you who serve in our helps type of ministries, there, there are daily helping of people in our church and our community that take place that many of you never see. And then there are other things that are larger examples of that. Just this past summer at our Vacation Bible School, I mean, the, the heart of, of this church is, is seen even in our little kids. Our children at Vacation Bible School gave over $3,000 out of their piggy banks, their birthday money, chores they were doing, uh, just money that they had to give to a ministry called One for Israel that we support over in Israel. And they were working with Holocaust survivors, people who had lost everything, as you know, through the terrible war. And these are individuals that are destitute. And they have a, a, a program where they, they give them food through a food pantry in order to open the door to the good news of the gospel message of the Messiah, Hamashiach, Jesus Christ, Yeshua, as they say in Hebrew. And our kids were doing what we see James calling us to do, to have a practical, to meet a practical physical need in order to open the door to the gospel. This is something that our church does in other ways. We have... We have a, a drive going on right now that we're calling Coats and Cans, our Kids Coats and Cans Drive. And this is something, as you know, we have this partnership with a public elementary school here just up the street from us called Colonial Hills. And in that school, which is, which is a, a poor school, we have an after-school Bible club that over the last five years we've seen over 100 kids come to faith in Jesus Christ in that public school through the partnership that our church has, through the, the mentoring that you're doing, through the ways that we're serving the school and the teachers and others. And there are many kids in that school that are going without. They don't have proper clothing. They're underserved. And so what we're doing is we're, we're collecting coats for the, for the children. We're collecting cans and, and things to do, Thanksgiving type of baskets and meals for them. And this is something that you as a church participate in. The women's ministry every year has the Celebrating the Heart of Christmas banquet. And as you know, if you've ever attended this, ladies, it's, it's done very well. It's a five-star type of banquet. There's a, a great gospel message that goes with it. We ask you to invite friends and neighbors and other women to come, and it's a very elegant affair. And this year, we want to do that again with a little bit of a twist. We still want people to invite their non-safe friends and neighbors to this event. But our focus this year is going to be on serving, again, the underserved women in our city and in our church and in our community. 
We're going we're gonna to do the same five-star banquet, the same great gospel message, but we want to give gift cards this year to the women who are attending. And the women that we are going to be specifically inviting to this are those ladies like from Sam Ministries, a partnership we have where we serve these uh, families that are in near homeless situations or homeless type of situations. We want to bring in these ladies. We have partnerships with the Pregnancy Resource Center here in our city. And you have these young women who are desperate as they've found themselves in a pregnancy situation and they have very little resources. And we want to be inviting them. We have a program uh, in our church for, for mops, mothers of preschoolers, but we also have a program called Teen Mops where we work with the Healy Murphy School, which has uh, ladies who have had children while they're still in high school type of thing. And we're going to be bringing, we want to invite those ladies. We have the Grace House ladies that, again, are a part of a transitional situation coming out of addictive or prison type of backgrounds that are uh, here at Wayside, and we want to be inviting them. And so these are the type of ladies that we are going to be inviting, and we want to bless them. We want to give them a gift. And so you have an opportunity in November to to give uh, to this specific ministry, to give gift cards, uh, to give resources to purchase these gift cards in order to serve these ladies. If you're interested in knowing more about it, the women's ministry has a table out in the courtyard today that you can stop by and get more information on this. Now, as you're thinking about these type of ministries, As you're thinking about his example here where he says, if you see somebody who is without food or clothing, you may be saying, Roger, I don't know anybody who's been missing any meals. And what he tells us is that this, we can take what he's saying here and we can broaden it to to ask ourselves, is there anybody here who needs a word of encouragement? Last week, you remember the illustration I used of Pee Wee Reese who put his arm around Jackie Robinson, and I asked you, who in your life needs an arm around their shoulder? And just this past Friday night, again, I saw Wayside demonstrating the love of God that James is talking about. We had a military marriage banquet here with about 160 active and retired military personnel and their spouses who came, and they brought about 100 of their kids as well, and we put on a wonderful date night. We called it Operation Date Night, and we fed them a nice meal. There was a nationally known speaker here that was equipping them on how to better protect their marriages. The the military has one of the highest divorce rates of, of any segment of our society. And so what we as a church did said, we live in San Antonio, Military City, USA. What are the needs of this community? And over about 100 of you served. You gave of the gift of your time as well as the resources that are given to this church to support a ministry like this. And we served these military families. And that was just the first step. We're going to be contacting them and trying to get them into groups, kind of... uh, We call them life groups. They're going to be affinity-based marriage training type of groups for those who are specifically in a military context. And we want to follow up and we want to equip and we want to strengthen these marriages. And we want to see this type of ministry multiply in this city, not just here at Wayside. We want to see it in every church in this community. And these are ways that, that you as a church are doing these things. As you look at your life today, ask yourself, What are you doing? What are you doing either in Wayside or out in the community to do these things? You know, one of the telltale signs of physical death is the absence of a heartbeat. And James says the same thing applies to our faith. 
or if we lack a heartbeat of love, if, if there is no evidence in our life of, of that new life that we have as we demonstrate God's love to others, he says we may have a dead faith. As you think about your own life today, as you do a checkup today, how's your heart doing when it comes to sharing God's love and the message of God's love through the gospel? Verses 18 through 19 tell us, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, the question is sometimes asked, if you were to be put on trial as a believer, would there be enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? If you were in a courtroom setting today and people were calling in witnesses to prove you were a Christian by the things that are seen in your life, what evidence could be presented against you? In Matthew seven twenty one, we saw where Jesus warned us that not everyone who says he is saved really is. And what James tells us here is not everyone who says he has faith really does. You know, we can quote verses from the Bible, we can say the right things, but does our life really have any evidence that shows we belong to Christ? In verse 19, he gives us another uh, sign of a faulty faith, which is simply marked by merely having head knowledge. He says, you believe that God is one and you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. I don't know if you realize this, but there is not a single demon in the universe that is an atheist or an agnostic. They all know that God is real. And they all have good orthodox beliefs. Here, James is quoting Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema, that says the Lord God is one. They know who God is. They have a, a perfect head knowledge of who he is. And yet, it has done nothing to change their behavior, to change their evil ways. Having this head knowledge of God is not good enough. All it does for them is tells them that they are headed for judgment. When it says they shudder, the word was used of a, a cat. Have you ever seen a cat bristle up, you know? And it says that's what they do. They're terrified of what is coming. They know of the judgment that is coming. But there's no turning from their evil ways. All the head knowledge does for some people is they know who God is. But if it is not moved from your head to your heart, and James is telling us to your hands as well, he says, what use is that? Back in James 1.12, we talked about the Bema judgment seat of Christ. Do you remember that from 2 Corinthians 5.10? As we looked at the reward that James was speaking of there, the crown of life, and we talked about the different rewards. And we saw that as Christians, we will be judged one day too, not to determine whether we get into heaven or go to hell. Friends, Jesus Christ bought the ticket home for us to heaven. He paid the penalty in full. And when we accept him by faith, our ticket home to heaven is guaranteed. But there will be a judgment for us as Christians where God will look at our life and he'll want to know, what did you do with your life, with the resources of time, talents, and treasures I gave you? And as you think about that coming judgment, does it make you shudder? Do you look at your life and say, I've really done nothing with what God has given to me? What James says is, the demons know there is a judgment that is coming. And we as believers also know there is a judgment that is coming to determine the rewards for how we've lived our life. And he wants to know, has it made a difference? 
He says in verse 20, but, you, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? The picture he gives here, as he says that our, our works are useless, it means unproductive. It was used of a field that was fallow or money that was earning no interest. It's the Greek word argos. So he's not saying that this this faith is worthless, that it won't save you. What he's saying is those of you who are truly saved that are doing nothing, he said it's like piling your money up in a bank account. Many of us know what this is like today, where there's no interest. In fact, a lot of these accounts are charging you more in fees than you're earning in interest, and you're losing money. Or he says you have this field that is fallow, and the best that it is doing is producing weeds. And he says, is that a sign of your life as a believer? Can all you hear are crickets out there in the the nighttime? There's nothing going on in your life. He says that if we talk the talk and do not walk the walk, we're at best taking up space. Some of you may remember the old Rich Mullins song. Uh, He said, faith without works is about as useless as a screen door on a submarine. Anybody remember that song? I look out and I see one of our men who was a submariner and ask him what it would be like if if you had a screen door on the submarine and you went under, what would happen? And James says, that is the picture here. I think a good illustration is to think of a ticket. Have you ever gotten one of those tickets that says void if detached and you you have the two parts that are torn off? And what he says is, if you're focused on your works, he wants us to know they are not valid for admission into heaven. For those who think James is preaching a gospel of works, he says, you're you're missing it. He says, the works will not save you. It is our faith, our faith in Jesus Christ that saves us. But what he says is, this is a two-part ticket. It is void if detached. He says that in the life of a believer, we need to have works, not to save us, But it goes with us. And he says, if you are depending upon your works alone to be saved without faith, you are lost. And so this is the picture that we have here. The Bible is clear that works do not save us. It was the work of Jesus Christ as he died on the cross to pay the penalty of death that I owe and you owe for our sins. That is what saves us. But he says that our faith is not alone. One of the foundational passages of the Bible is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It tells us, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, a gift you don't buy, you don't pay for, you don't work for. It was given. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. We memorize that verse. We share that verse. But brothers and sisters, do you know what the very next verse says? Do you know what Ephesians 2.10 says? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God does not separate our faith and our works. He wants these two together. He says, yes, you are saved by grace through faith alone, but I want to see your faith One of the reformers, Martin Luther, said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. The great evangelist D.L. Moody once said, every Bible should be bound in shoe leather. Don't you love that? 
Every Bible should be bound in shoe leather. In the next verse, James gives us two illustrations of what faith and works looks like through the lives of Abraham and Rahab. Now, as James presents these two examples, the way the question is phrased in the Greek text again expects the reader to agree. When he says in verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son on the altar? And the Jew would have read this. The first century Greek reader would have read this and said, yeah. Now you're going, whoa, 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 whoa. no, Roger, that's not how it works. Because in Romans chapter four, Paul says something different. There seems to be a contradiction. If you look at Romans 4, 2 through 3, Paul writes, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. You see, this is where people say, see, James and Paul are fighting each other. There's this war. They're, they're contradicting. No, not really. Listen. Verses 4 through 5 of Romans. Now the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor. You earn it. What do we earn? We earn the wages of sin is death. But as what is due, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And you're saying, yeah, I'm with Paul. I agree with that. So do I. But I also agree with James. Now you're saying, wait a minute, how... How did these two come together? Well, the solution is found in what we've already talked about, the context. When Paul writes, he's talking about the priority of faith, while James is talking about the proof of faith. Paul is talking about the moment of salvation where we have faith that is salvific, that is what saves us. James is talking about the works that prove our faith. Now, they both use Abraham as the example here. So how does this come together? The way that it comes together is when you look at verses 22 through 24, James is emphasizing the joint role of faith and actions that work together. Remember that ticket, void if detached? You see, faith is the force behind the deed, and the deed that is mentioned here is the finality of Abraham's faith. Works serve as the barometer of justification while faith is the basis. If you're feeling a little lost, let me go deeper here. <laughs> and it will become clearer. When we read, was, his faith made, was not his faith made complete? This is the Greek word teleo. Do you remember that word from earlier in this series? It's the word that means perfect, complete. And we talked earlier in James how God is at work perfecting us, maturing us, refining us. Do you remember that process? And so as James is speaking about the faith of a believer, he uses Abraham as the example. And he says, Abraham was a man who came to faith. But when he offered his son Isaac as a sacrifice in obedience to what God was asking, it says his, his faith was made complete. Literally, it reads, it was carried to the end. Now, this statement, if his faith was carried to the end or completed, do you know what that assumes? That there was a beginning where his faith started. And that's what Paul is talking about. The priority of faith is what is the moment of belief? And James is talking about what is the moment of completion? Paul uses words like justification, sanctification, glorification. 
This is the process we're talking about here. I want you to remember that Abraham, though he was a man of great faith, struggled at times in his trust, as we all do. I want you to go home and read through the book of Genesis and look at Abraham. And it says that Abraham was a man like all of us who, was, who, who moved in maturity in his faith. Do you know there were times that he wavered in his faith? The moment of belief that Paul is referring to is when God made the promise and said, Abraham, you will have a son. You will have a son. This is Genesis fifteen six, where God promised that Abraham and Sarah, who had been barren and who were in their old age, God appeared and said, Abraham, I will give you a son. Abraham said, my servant Eleazar is going to get all my stuff when I die. There's no heir. And God said, oh, no, Abraham, I have a son coming. Abraham believed God, and that is what was reckoned to him as righteousness. That is the moment of faith Paul is speaking of, Genesis 15, 6. What is James talking about? He's talking about the sacrifice of Isaac. Do you see the priority and the proof? Let me continue to walk you through the process. So Abraham believed God, I will have an heir. I have a son coming. I have that faith. But then what happened? There was a delay, there was a delay, there was a delay. And what did Abraham do? Well, I've got to take matters into my own hand. I don't know that God is capable of handling this on his own. So he took his handmaid, Hagar, remember that? And he had a son who became uh, the father of the Arab world, Ishmael. That was not the promised son of Genesis 15, 6. It would be Isaac through Sarah. Now, Sarah is here. Hagar is here. You know there was a big battle that takes place. They separated. They split. Well, then Abraham is going along, still no baby, and he and Sarah are traveling. And what did he do on two different occasions? I remember Abraham's story. Some other men looked at her and said, Pharaoh and others, boy, she's a beautiful woman. Abraham, this man of great faith, says, I can't trust God to take care of me. These guys are going to kill me to take my wife. So I'm going to say she's my sister, not my wife. I'm not going to, I'm going to hide the fact she's my wife. On two different occasions, his fragile faith caused him to fear and think again, I need to take care of things my way. God thankfully intervened, kept Sarah from being taken as a wife to somebody else. And then along comes the birth of the promised son, Genesis fifteen six. Twenty more years pass from the time the son comes to the time that he then is asked by God to go and offer his son in Genesis 22. You see, Paul is talking about Genesis 15, 6. James is talking about Genesis 22. When you remove the context, you have a contradiction and confusion. But when you look at it within the context, you have an understanding that Paul and James are not fighting each other. They are back-to-back supporting each other. Because Paul is speaking of the priority of faith, which James fully agrees with. Abraham had to come to faith to be saved. But now there is this completion, this trust, this maturity of his, his faith in God. Put yourself in Abraham's situation for a moment. You've waited all these years for the promised son. Suddenly the Lord says to you, hey, Abraham, you know that son that I gave you that I promised you would have? I now need you to take and sacrifice him, kill him. And you're going, this doesn't make any sense, God. If... 
If the line is going to come through Isaac and I kill him, it's over. We would want to fix it our way. But this time, Abraham says, you know what, God? I'm in a fog. I don't understand you, but I trust you. And I will do what you say. And so Genesis 22.5 tells us, Abraham said to his young men, he takes Isaac, he takes some servants, they go on this journey to go to the mountain of sacrifice. They get near and he says to the servants here in Genesis 22.5, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship. Now don't miss this. And we will return to you. Now, how does that work? If I'm going to take my son and I'm going to kill him on an altar, why am I saying we will return? Well, Abraham says, you know, God, I really don't understand what you're asking, but I trust you. And if, if it has to be done this way, then I believe you'll raise him from the dead. You'll bring him back. I don't know how you're going to do it, but I just know I trust you and I'll do what you asked. Now, God didn't want his son killed. God's not one who wanted child sacrifice. As Abraham raised the knife, and by the way, Isaac wasn't a little boy as you see in some Sunday school pictures. He was a young man of about 20 years old. He could have fought his aged father and said, this isn't going to happen. But he willingly laid down his life and said, Dad, I trust you, I trust God. And it says that God said, Abraham, do not kill the boy. I know now that you trust me. That is the faith that James is talking about. The completion, the maturity where, where Abraham got to the point where he said, you know what, I tried to do it my way several times, but this time, God, I'm doing it your way. And that is why his faith was said to be complete, matured. Paul said that Abraham was justified by faith. And James said that Abraham was justified by faith, evidenced by what he did. The priority and the proof is what we're reading about here. The Greek word for justified, the Greek word for justified is, uh, is dikaio. Dikaio, this word means to justify, vindicate, acquit. It literally means to declare righteous. This, this word has two general meanings. Uh, one of them speaks of an acquittal where we declare and treat the person as righteous even when they are guilty. That's us, friends. We are sinners. We owe the penalty of death. And yet it says we have been declared righteous because the blood of Jesus has washed away our sins. And we are seen as being washed white as snow. We were guilty and yet we were acquitted. We were declared righteous when we placed our faith in Christ and accepted his death in our place. Now, that's the meaning in terms of salvation where the righteousness of Christ is credited to our account. The second related meaning pertains to vindication or a proof of righteousness. And this is what James is speaking about, where he said the act of faith that Abraham did showed his faith. The action or work showed the faith that he had. In James 2.25, it says, In the same way was not even Rahab the harlot also justified, declared righteous, it means, by what? By works. The works were her actions as she hid the spies and she helped them to escape, as we see mentioned there. We don't have time today to go into the totality of her story, but go home and read Joshua chapter 2. And what you will see in the life of Rahab is the same thing. 
There was a a point where she came to faith before the actions of her faith were seen. As you read about this Canaanite woman, as these Jewish spies show up in Jericho and the city is looking for them, it says she took them in, she hid them. And then later she helped them escape the city. And as she talks to the spies before the actions took place, she says to them, I know about your God and I believe in your God. We've all been hearing the stories. We all know what he is doing out there, how he sets you free from the Egyptian captivity, how he's been taking down the enemy nations like dominoes. And she says, I know he's going to win. And I'm on his side. She had faith in Jehovah, the one true God. And then her actions of hiding and helping these spies to escape showed her faith. You know, as you think about Rahab, she's called the harlot here. She was a prostitute. And the way she probably heard about who God was was, was kind of sad because it was the merchants and the men who were traveling through the city and, it, and were traveling through her bedroom. And as they were there, they were telling the stories of what's happening out there. And this woman in the midst of the mess of her life this, this cast off, this Canaanite woman who's in the shadows of society, she says, you know what? I want that God. I need that God in my life. And she placed her faith in him. And she was saved. Not just physically having her life spared when the city was destroyed. She and her family were saved. But she was saved for all eternity because of her faith And if you're here today and you think that your life is too messed up for God to take you, you are wrong. Think of this harlot, this prostitute. And it says that she too was declared righteous. How? By Romans 5 8, where it says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Abraham and Rahab lived before Jesus ever died on the cross. And yet they placed their faith in what they understood of God's promise and God's provision at the time. You and I today have the whole story. We know who Jesus is. We know what he has done. And the question is, have you placed your faith and trust in the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ? As you think about these two examples that were given, they are bookends. You have Abraham, the patriarch, and you have Rahab, the prostitute. You have one at the highest end of society, one at the lowest end of society. You have the original Jew and you have the Canaanite woman who was a foreigner brought into the nation of promise. And as you look at your life today, friends, these examples tell us that all of us fit somewhere in between, whether we are the highest or the lowest in our our eyes or that of society. God says there is a place for you if you will place your faith and trust in my son, Jesus Christ, to be saved. As you think of your life today, have you done that? If you've never done that, what God says is in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is your moment of faith. So tell God today, God, I'm a sinner. I'm far from you. I've made mistakes in my life. I owe a penalty of sin called death, but I know that you came and you died for me. I believe that. That is my faith. And if you do that, the scripture says you will be saved. For the rest of us who have taken that step of faith in the past, God says to us today, show me your faith. 
Go out into the world and demonstrate your new and transformed life by the things that you do so that others can see and others can be uh, told the truth as well through your life. Will you join me, please, as we close in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it reveals to us of the living word, Jesus Christ, who came to be that provision, to be that payment, to be the one who would die for me and the others who are here. I pray again, Lord, that if there's anyone here who doesn't yet know your son, that today would be the day of salvation. Today would be the day where they place their faith and trust in you. Lord God, for the rest of us who know your son, for the rest of us who have come to faith in the past, I pray that we would be those who have a vibrant living faith where the truth of who you are, Jesus, and the way you have changed us would be seen in in the way that we walk and talk, the way that we live. So send us out now, Father, as your redeemed people. Whether we are a revered patriarch or a redeemed prostitute, we belong to you. And we thank you that you love us. And we thank you that you saved us. So we go out now, Lord, thankful and grateful for the great gift of new life through your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.